Hello and welcome to An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. We explore the Book of Mormon with the assumption that science worked the same then as it does now and that the characters are real people with the same types of feelings and tendencies as you and me today. The views and opinions expressed here are strictly those of the narrator and should not be considered official interpretations in any way. And now An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. Hello and welcome back. Today we will be covering Mosiah chapter 3. This is the second episode covering the incredible sermon that King Benjamin gave to his people in the Nephite capital city of Zarahemla. And to be honest, I feel bad for having to break it up into multiple episodes. When I finished with the sermon, I'll have to create a playlist with the whole sermon so you can go back and binge watch the whole thing all at once if you want. We ended our last video with the trivia question. The Book of Mormon only mentions four women by name. One of them is in this chapter, Mosiah chapter 3. Who are the four women named in the Book of Mormon? I'll give them in the order in which they appear. First is Sariah. She was Lehi's wife and the mother of Nephi, and she might have had more of an influence than you might suspect. Let's look at this one excerpt of her speaking in 1 Nephi chapter 5 verse 8. Now I know of a surety that the Lord hath protected my sons and delivered them out of the hands of Laban, and given them the power whereby they could accomplish the thing which the Lord hath commanded them. And after this manner of language did she speak. The, the phrasing here is oddly familiar. The Lord giving her sons power to, quote, accomplish the thing which the Lord hath commanded them. That sounds a lot like what Nephi said in 1 Nephi 3.7. Would we be surprised to learn that when Nephi gave his famous I will go and do speech in 1 Nephi 3.7 that he was just repeating what his mom had taught him growing up? Nephi kind of seems to be hinting at that here. Okay, sorry, I'm, I'm not going to spend this much time on all four women. We're just doing the trivia question, but Soraya takes a bad rap sometimes, and she may very well have been the hidden force behind Nephi's testimony, so I wanted to give her a, a quick shout-out. The second woman named in the Book of Mormon is Mary, the mother of Jesus. She's mentioned by name in Mosiah chapter 3, verse 8, and we'll cover that briefly today. The third is Abish. She was a Lamanite who converted to the gospel because of a dream her father had. We'll talk about her when we get to Alma chapter 19. Lastly is Isabel, who Alma refers to as the harlot Isabel. Whether she was actually a harlot by profession or whether Alma was simply calling his son's girlfriend a tramp isn't entirely clear, but she's in Alma chapter 39. So, Sariah, Mary, Abish, and Isabel, and now you know. So now we come back to King Benjamin's talk. In Mosiah chapter 2, he reminded the people that he expected them to serve one another and had set an example for them by working and serving them. Even though he was their king, he also emphasized the nothingness of our mortal state, that no matter how hard we try, nothing we do can lessen our debt to God. Now we arrive at chapter 3. King Benjamin told his congregation that he had recently been awakened by an angel and given information to share with his people. Awake, the angel said, for behold, I am come to declare unto you glad tidings of great joy. God had heard his prayers, knew of his righteousness, and wanted him to share the message with his people so they could also rejoice. The angel revealed information about the Savior to Benjamin, which he then relayed to his people. As, as modern readers, 
I don't think we can appreciate how new this information was. King Benjamin's subjects had comparatively little knowledge about Jesus Christ or his gospel. Several chapters back, the prophet Jerem spoke of the first four books of the Book of Mormon containing a fullness of the gospel. By comparison, Latter-day Saints currently have nearly 2,000 pages of scriptures and thousands of sermons from living prophets and apostles. So when we read King Benjamin's words, it's easy to think he was just summarizing information that everybody already knew and had access to rather than introducing new information. But this probably would have been brand new to all of them. Nephi previously told us that he rejoiced in Christ that his children might know where to turn for a remission of their sins. But what did they actually know about Christ's mortal ministry? Benjamin began by describing some of the Savior's actions while he was here on this earth. Verse 5, For behold, the time cometh, and is not far distant, that with power the Lord omnipotent, who reigneth, who was, and is from all eternity to all eternity, shall come down from heaven among the children of men, and shall dwell in a tabernacle of clay, and shall go forth amongst men, working mighty miracles, such as healing the sick, raising the dead, causing the lame to walk, and the blind to receive their sight, and the deaf to hear, and curing all manner of diseases. And he shall cast out devils, or the evil spirits, which dwell in the hearts of the children of men. And lo, he shall suffer temptations, and pain of body, hunger, thirst, and fatigue, even more than man can suffer, except it be unto death. For behold, blood cometh from every pore, so great shall be his anguish for the wickedness and the abominations of his people." And then after summarizing the Savior's mortal ministry, as he had promised to do, Benjamin revealed the names of both the Savior and the Savior's mother. Verse 8, And he shall be called Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Father of heaven and earth, the Creator of all things from the beginning, and his mother shall be called Mary. After giving them the actual name of their Savior, which might have left them reeling, Benjamin explained both the purpose of the Savior's coming and how his people would receive him. And lo, he cometh unto his own, that salvation might come unto the children of men, even through faith on his name. And even after all this, they shall consider him a man, and say that he hath a devil, and shall scourge him, and shall crucify him. And he shall rise the third day from the dead. And behold, he standeth to judge the world. And behold, all these things are done, that a righteous judgment might come upon the children of men. Benjamin explained that the Savior subjected himself to the trials of mortality, even allowing himself to be scourged and crucified so he could righteously judge his people. He next described the purpose of the Savior's atonement and whose sins it would cover. Verse 11, For behold, and also, his blood atoneth for the sins of those who have fallen by the transgression of Adam, who have died not knowing the will of God concerning them, or who have ignorantly sinned. But woe, woe unto him who knoweth that he rebelleth against God. For salvation cometh to none such, except it be through repentance and faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you've sinned ignorantly or because you didn't know any better, the atonement covers it. But if you know God's will and rebel against it, you're not forgiven unless you have faith and repent. Now, I've, I've wondered about what repentance was like before the Savior's atonement. Did people worry about whether the Savior was going to come and fulfill his role? What if he didn't? But God commanded his prophets to preach repentance 
as though the Savior had already completed the mission. Here's verse 13. And the Lord God hath sent his holy prophets among all the children of men to declare these things to every kindred, nation, and tongue, that thereby whosoever should believe that Christ should come, the same might receive remission of their sins and rejoice with exceedingly great joy, even as though he had already come among them. The ability to depend on an atonement that had not yet occurred indicates its eternal nature. Christ didn't just atone for actions and events following Gethsemane, but everything preceding it as well. His atonement paid justice completely. It was infinite in both directions, both in the future and also in the past. Some of today's leading physicists, such as Stephen Hawking's, theorize that time is simply a matter of perspective. Everything has already happened, so to speak, but the human brain can only process things sequentially, so we perceive time as a series of events unfolding. But one whose mind is eternal could witness all of the universe's events simultaneously. That's what the physicists say. Neil A. Maxwell, an apostle, spoke of God experiencing the eternities, quote, as one eternal now. In Moses 1.6, God declared, quote, All things are present with me, for I know them all. And Alma talked about this concept with his son Corianton in Alma chapter 40. Now, whether there is more than one time appointed for man to rise, it mattereth not, for all do not die at once, and this mattereth not. And here it is. All is as one day with God, and time is only measured unto men. Now, think about that for a minute. We think our scientists are so smart, but we just read examples of Moses, Alma, and King Benjamin discussing concepts that were not even conceived by the scientific world until the 20th century, that everything is infinite and eternal, and the only limitation is the human mind. Or if you want to believe that Joseph Smith invented the Book of Mormon, you need to explain how his writings align with the minds of the best 20th century physicists. All right, all right, before I get carried away, I'll admit that's just one thing, and it's not conclusive proof of anything, but the evidence tally is starting to add up. Maybe it's all coincidence. If you want an example of someone dismissing coincidences that led to conclusions that they didn't like, you can find it in the Book of Mormon in Helaman 16.16, where the people saw prophecies being fulfilled, and here's what the non-believers had to say about it. Some things they might have guessed right among so many, but behold, we know that all the great and marvelous works cannot come to pass of which has been spoken. Going back to our topic that the atonement was infinite and eternal. Despite the blessings of the atonement already being available, the people were stiff-necked. And that phrase stiff-necked means maybe that, you know, they were unwilling to bow their heads. So the Lord gave them the law of Moses. He gave many hints and signs about his coming, and prophets gave witness of him. But the people hardened their hearts and chose to not understand the law. As we'll see later in Abinadi's counter with the priests of King Noah, even the priests were unaware that the law of Moses was meaningless without the atonement. All of the gospel hinges on the atonement. Without it, verse 16 teaches that even little children must perish. Verse 16, And even if it were possible that little children could sin, they could not be saved. But I say unto you, they are blessed. For behold, as in Adam, or by nature, they fall. Even so, the blood of Christ atoneth for their sins. Having introduced children, Benjamin next addressed the topic of human nature. Modern thinking seems to think that natural behavior equals good behavior. Natural tendencies are justified or even elevated. 
For example, some scientists claim that humans naturally desire to mate with multiple partners, and since such a preference is natural, they say it should be embraced. King Benjamin felt differently about, quote, natural behavior. Here's what he taught. For the natural man is an enemy to God and has been from the fall of Adam and will be forever and ever unless he yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit and putteth off the natural man and becometh the saint through the atonement of Christ the Lord and becometh as a child, submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, willing to submit to all things which the Lord seeth to inflict upon him even as a child that submit to his father. So rather than embracing these natural inclinations, King Benjamin taught, our goal is to overcome them and become saints. Doing this requires us to become as little children, but in what sense should we become childlike? So in my roles as brother, dad, uncle, grandpa, I've spent quite a bit of time around little children, and I can confidently say that few of God's creations better personify humanity in its natural state than the human toddler. If kids are as wonderful and delightful as the Savior and King Benjamin say they are, why is it so hard to find a babysitter? I asked that question once in Gospel Doctrine class, and no one would even look at me for the rest of the hour. So what redeeming qualities do these messy, disruptive, noisy little creatures have that we are supposed to emulate? Well, from verse 19 above, they are submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, and willing to submit to God. Children role-play. They pretend to be grown-ups. They're in awe of adults. They want to be like them. They want to grow up to be like mom and dad. Do we feel a similar yearning to be like our heavenly parents? Or to use the Savior's phrasing, do we hunger and thirst after righteousness? If all of us, even the most horrible people, Started out as kids with a childlike attitude, where did it go? Can such an attitude last? Should it last? Human teens are chemically geared for rebellion. In fact, we took a parenting class at one point when we were preparing for an adoption, and our instructor said, if you ever have a non-rebellious teenager, I want you to take him to a psychologist to find out what's wrong. So, Recognizing that you're a different individual than your parents with your own opinions and agenda is a crucial part of human development. Perhaps such a phase where we learn to make decisions independently is also required for spiritual development. As we learn to act for ourselves, we're tempted to make choices that our heavenly parents might not make. But this isn't a defect. It's why God put us in fallen mortal bodies naturally attracted to sin and drawn to sinful tendencies. Lehi explained to Jacob in 2 Nephi 2 that temptation enables us to act for ourselves. Verse 16, Wherefore the Lord gave unto man that he should act for himself. Wherefore man could not act for himself, save it should be that he was enticed by the one or the other. And God revealed the same concept to Joseph Smith in D&C 2939 when he said, and it must needs be that the devil should tempt the children of men, or they could not be agents unto themselves. For if they should never have bitter, they could not know the sweet. But even after learning that the plan was for us to learn by experience, many of us feel like we're disappointing God when we deviate from his gospel path, as, as though he expected something different. But even if he's disappointed, he's not surprised. Returning to Mosiah 3, And moreover, I say unto you that the time shall come when the knowledge of the Savior shall spread throughout every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, 
And behold, when that time cometh, none shall be found blameless before God, except it be little children, only through repentance and faith on the name of the Lord God Omnipotent. Such is the fallen world into which we were born that, quote, none should be found blameless. And to borrow a phrase from computer programmers, that's not a bug, that's a feature. Knowing that we would naturally sin, God provided a way to become blameless again through repentance and faith. So how could we possibly reconcile that God knew we would sin with the fact that from Alma 45 verse 16, the Lord cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. Maybe we can liken this to a mother allowing her boys to go camping. Is mom surprised when her boys return filthy and smelling like sweat and smoke and campfires, a condition that she cannot tolerate with the least degree of allowance? Is she disappointed in her boys? Does she think less of them? No. So they return home excited to hug her, but unfortunately she cannot tolerate filth and stench. So her boys launder their clothes, put away their camping gear, scrub themselves clean, and she welcomes them with open arms. I would suggest that God is no more disappointed or displeased by our need to repent than a mother is by her football-playing son's need to shower. So if stumbling and falling down is honestly just part of the expected plan and process, why do so many of us feel like failures? Long story short, the devil tries to persuade us that we're failures. And I'm not just saying that. The word that gets translated to English as devil appears in the Greek Bible as diabolos. Diabolos is the root of words such as diabolical, for example. Strong's Greek Dictionary of the Bible defines diabolos as, quote, a traducer, false accuser, devil slanderer. All right, what's a traducer? So Merriam-Webster defines traduce as to expose to shame or blame by means of falsehood and misrepresentation. And then it gives the following advice for how writers can use it in a sentence. It says, traduce is one of a number of English synonyms that you can choose when you need a word that means to injure by speaking ill of. Choose traduce when you want to stress the deep personal humiliation, disgrace, and distress felt by the victim. Think about that. The name devil, diabolos, means one who shames through falsehood or through misrepresentation. That is his title. He not only tempts us to sin, but also persuades us that we're unwelcome and unwanted for having done so. So, our Heavenly Father sent us to earth knowing that we would sin. We're expected to overcome our natural tendencies and become like Him. But, as He said at the beginning, if we do something and we know better, and we all will, we need to repent, meaning to correct our mistakes and to earnestly strive to eradicate our sinful tendencies. But as we've discussed previously, as we come unto Christ, He'll show us our weakness. He'll show us more weaknesses. As we learn more of God, we'll become more and more acutely aware of our shortcomings. And the devil knows this. And being a traducer, he will try to make us feel humiliated, disgraced, and worthless. He wants us to give up. Feelings of guilt, though, are only productive if they motivate you to change. Feeling bad by itself doesn't do any good. Alma had good advice for people who have done horrible things. And in the specific case of the scripture I'm going to read, he was talking about his son's involvement with the harlot Isabel, who we talked about at the beginning. 
In Alma 42.29, he said, And now, my son, I desire that you should let these things trouble you no more, and only let your sins trouble you with that trouble which shall bring you down under repentance. God knew that we would make mistakes, even horrible ones. But that doesn't mean he doesn't want you back. So get yourself cleaned up, just like a scout's mom is happy to hug him after he's taken a shower and put his clothes in the laundry. Clean yourself up and your heavenly parents will welcome you with open arms, no matter how dirty you were before. And that's it for today. Next week, we should be able to wrap up King Benjamin's sermon. And now today's trivia question. Just prior to this sermon, King Benjamin made his son Mosiah the new king. How old was Mosiah when he became the king? Explain how you know. And we will see you next time.